Opening, Closing Written by Chuffy Stilton Read by My Zinger Chapter 3 Last night, a whole lifetime ago, the prisoner named Zuko had said something interesting to Sokka. I thought you don't believe in mystical nonsense. I don't believe in the Avatar, Sokka had said back. I believe in you. Believe was a funny word. Sokka didn't believe in spirits, of course, no more than he believed that birds could fly, or that gravity exists, or that people had souls inside of them. He knew these things. He didn't need to believe in them. Unalak talked a lot about belief. He loved giving speeches about how unspiritual the world was becoming, how everyone believed in the wrong things. There's an imbalance between light and dark, he said all the time, along with, the spirits are angry. People have forgotten about them because they're obsessed with frivolous things. And the classic, believe me, Sokka, the world has failed spiritually without the Avatar. And so on, and so on. The Avatar loved talking about belief. But the more he wanted Sokka to believe in something, the less Sokka believed in anything. Except maybe the one person he should absolutely not believe. Zuko looked surprised at what he said, and Sokka couldn't help it. He reached out and laid a palm flat on the other boy's chest. He had a crazy desire to cut it open, not in a cruel way, but simply to open up a space there, a gap for him to enter and take a look around, to catalogue and study in depth, to linger. When he spread out his hand, Zuko's chest felt warmer than he'd expected, he was so thin that the bones underneath felt hollow, bird-like. Sokka liked that, too. He could have stayed like that for a long time, one hand over the warm skin concealing the red, living mystery of what's underneath. But then Zuko scowled and pushed his hand away, and Sokka let his hands drop. He admired Zuko in a strange way, he often admired people like that. They were so stupid, but they were so certain in their stupidity. And Zuko himself was so fascinating. His story about the dead cousin and the chestnut tree, his vision of the pond, his physical tics. He had one stupidly effective way of making Sokka talk. Whenever Sokka spoke, Zuko would listen intently for a moment, and then... Abruptly, he would cock his head sharply at an angle, and then hold himself even more still. It gave the impression that he was giving Sokka's every word his undivided attention. 
like he couldn't bear to miss a single precious syllable. Sokka had figured out early on that he only did this because he was nearly deaf on the one side. The burn over his left eye had damaged his left ear, too. And yet, it still worked. He couldn't let something like that be destroyed. He couldn't. Unalak would be very angry when he discovered that the firebender prisoners had escaped and Sokka was gone. But who cared about what the Avatar thought? The ride to the camp where Grand Grand and Bato lived was uneventful, and Sokka was grateful for it. In the old days, the people of the Southern Water Tribe navigated by reading the landscape alone. Sokka's ancestors could find their way even in snowstorms. They saw patterns in the ice and the shape of the snow ridges as they were sharpened by the wind. In the old days, before cities, when there was the land and only the land, humans could orient themselves like the otter penguins did. In the white landscape, the penguins always took the shortest route to the sea because they saw the distant reflection of clouds on water. They saw the water sky, and Sokka's people could do the same. There was a map of the land in the sky, in the stars at night, or mirrored on the underside of low clouds, and people who knew how to look could see it, always. Sokka couldn't. When he was much younger, riding on sleds or sitting on the back of his father's polar bear dog, he sometimes thought he could see a pattern in the drifts of snow or patches of moss. He used to believe that there was a voice that spoke to him and told him secrets, though what the secrets were he had since long forgot. After childhood, that particular fantasy disappeared. He grew up and dreamed about other things. Now he found his way to Grand Grand by using one of the specially bred lunar moths kept in a cage that Sokka tied to Upa's harness. The moths were bred in pairs, and each one seeked out its mate instinctively by faint geomagnetic signals they sent out. This one had its mate safeguarded by Sokka's mother. Sokka had a second moth kept in his pack to help him find his way back to the city later. Grand Grand didn't live in a permanent village, but with a small band of families that included Bato. They kept to a more old-fashioned way of life, and their existence was not built around houses and cities, but around living things. That was how everyone once lived. Before they built cities, Sokka's people gathered and split apart according to the changing cycles of life and death. Childbirths, marriages, deaths. But also the habits of deer, turtle seals, whale walruses, Sometimes fish and migratory birds. Sometimes the hunters moved inland to chase the huge polar deers. Sometimes they stayed on the coast to live off the sea. But nowadays, most of the southern water tribe's populations clustered in cities, and even the people who lived farther off in the land didn't move around as much as they used to, when hunting was the only source of food. If you believed Bato... Something vital was lost along the way when life got easier. Sokka himself had no opinion one way or another. To him, life was whatever was in front of you, 
and it seemed that everyone, everywhere, had their inevitable share of sorrow as well as pleasure. There was no stopping anything. The world was always changing. Nothing in the past was real. The future was the only thing that mattered. What else could anyone do but accept it? As Upa bounded along on her four massive paws, Sokka tucked himself tight against her back. He brushed away the frozen flecks of melted snow from his fur hood, letting them fall in streams of scattered crystals. He nudged the moth's cage with a mitted hand. The engineered insect fluttered, and the triangles on its black and silver wings tilted slightly more west. Despite the apparent fragility of its gossamer wings, the lunar moths were hardy creatures, unbothered by the cold. He checked it against his compass to be sure, and then tugged gently on Upa's reins. She barked. They were close now. At the first glimpse of the camp, Sokka pulled Upa to a slow stop. There was a small hitching post that someone had left staked into the ground, still a fair distance from the houses. It was left there just for visitors and their polar bear dogs. These dogs were accepted in cities and around the seaports, but this far out on the land, both engineered animals and foreign ones drew a lot of ire. Polar bear dogs were one of the first things the Northern Water Tribe brought to their sister tribe when they began consolidating power a century ago. Before then, the people of the Southern Water Tribe used teams of smaller native fox dogs for transportation. But compared to fox dogs, Upa and the rest of her breed were easier to manage and didn't need sleds leashed onto them. Though one always heard stories about polar bear dogs who'd escaped their owners and went feral on the tundra, wreaking havoc on the local seal and penguin populations, they quickly became indispensable. Although Sokka doubted any beast as gentle and well-trained as Upa would run off, he checked and double-checked that she was tightly leashed before untying the rest of his bags. It was a matter of courtesy as much as anything. Be good, Upa, he told the animal. He checked to make sure she had plenty of seal biscuits to gnaw on while he was away, and then headed toward the ice houses in the distance. The houses at the camp were just temporary structures, but some of them were built in a more elaborate style, with small hypocausts and pretty waterbender-made designs on the outside. But Gran Gran preferred living in something simpler. Sokka stopped in front of a structure made from plain ice and snow. The only convenience it had were the blocks of crystal-clear waterbender-made ice at the top that let sunlight in and magnified it. There was a small tendril of smoke coming up from inside, and Sokka smiled. He pushed aside the skins hanging over the door and stuck his head in. There was an old, silver-haired woman sitting by the lamp, doing some sewing. She looked up when Sokka called, Gran-Gran? It's me! Surprise! Gran-Gran clucked her tongue. Her fingers went on sewing. It is you. That's right, said Sokka. I came back from the southern air hub a few weeks ago and thought, hey, you know who would love a visit from her favorite grandson? He got another cluck for this. You've been back for this long, and you only remember to visit me now? 
I was busy. Busy chasing girls back in the city. The inside of the ice house was lined with soft skins. It was much warmer than the outside, so Sokka pulled off his outer parka. It also gave him an excuse to hide his face for a moment. Something like that, he said. He had been busy. Busy sorting through the scribbled notes on airbender birth rates and population statistics. Busy dreading the thought that the Avatar might show up and drag him back to the prisoner camp to keep working there. Busy dealing with the sudden appearance of two firebenders and their strange stories. And, also, busy pacing around, busy feeling sick to his stomach, busy squashing down the nascent and nauseating suspicion that everything he's ever thought or achieved with his short life so far had been wrong. I was just busy, Grand-Gran, he said again, quieter. Grand-Gran sniffed, then pulled him closer to the lamp to sit down. She patted his cheek, then rubbed the material of his shirt between her thumb and an index finger. If you're not chasing girls, then why are you wearing such fine clothes? You'll wear them out just putting them on for travel. I like clothes, Sokka said petulantly. He was wearing his favorite overshirt today. A soft one dyed dark blue, beaded over with tiny geometric designs on the collar and sleeves. Can't a grandson dress up for his own grandmother? You know you're the prettiest girl in the South Pole to me. His grandmother laughed, revealing a mouth of worn-down teeth. Why don't you do the prettiest girl in the South Pole a favor and chew these skins for me? Sokka made a face. After turtle seals were harvested and skinned by the men, it was the women's task to clean the skins and prepare them for use. They had to dry the skins out first to preserve them, and then chew them to soften the leather for sewing. Sokka had to do it too when he was a child, staying with his grandmother. It was still his least favorite chore. It gave him sore gums for days afterwards. Tea first! He said brightly. Rising up, he pretended he didn't hear her snort as he headed to the small stove to boil water. While he waited for the water, he opened one of the bags he had brought and showed Grand-Grand the contents. Fresh fruit, a few bolts of colorful wool, a new cutting board, a jar of herbal balm for her joints. Grand-Grand touched his hands in thanks. She nodded at Sokka's other bag by his feet. And what's that? Stuff for Eolik and the other women. His grandmother laughed. Too busy to chase girls, eh? What did I do to get such a vain grandson who thinks about nothing but clothes and girls all day? Nothing's wrong with clothes and girls, Grand-Gran. If only those were my only problems, Sokka thought. Eolik was the woman who lived with Bato now. Out here on the land, no one had the luxury of surviving alone. Eolik sewed and repaired Bato's clothes and kept the lamp burning, and he was good to her in return. She was a pleasant woman, widowed twice before even though she was still fairly young. Sokka liked her, though he knew part of the reason he liked her was because he didn't detect any grand passion between her and Bato. 
He believed Hakoda was the true magnetic pole of Bato's affections, the direction his heart once pointed and still did, even if Bato wouldn't live with them anymore. As a gesture of his appreciation over this fact, he always brought her something when he came to visit. Fresh fruit, usually. A hair ribbon or two and some perfume. Things he thought would make doing hard chores in the cold slightly sweeter. The pot bubbled. Sokka took it off the fire and fetched out the tin of dried rhododendron leaves that Grand Grand collected herself every summer to make tea. He took a deep breath of the comforting smells around him, the bubbling seal fat inside the lamp, the scent of the strong, sweet tea. The wild rhododendron tasted especially good after all those cups of grassy Fire Nation stuff. Where is your sister? Grand Grand asked. Katara is still not back yet. She's coming back today from the Southern Air Hub with the Avatar. What's Katara doing? An unmarried girl her age traveling around with a man like that? Privately, Sokka agreed, but some tiny scrap of older brother feeling awoke anyways and felt obliged to come to Katara's defense. She's sixteen! You were her age when you left the North Pole. That was different. How was it different? Grand Grand frowned. If you young people don't want advice from your elders, then I'll keep my mouth shut. Sokka wrapped his arms around her and pressed his nose against her silvery hair. He breathed in. Of course we do, he said once he drew back. But if you hadn't run away, the two of us wouldn't be here now. You can't tell Katara not to do the exact same thing you did. My case was different. If you've ever met the man my mother wanted me to marry, then you'd understand. That bad? Sokka teased. Was he also a frivolous idiot, like your grandson? His grandmother poked him lightly on the arm with her needle. A bit of flirting at your age is healthy, she said, ignoring Sokka's yelp. If Paku was the type to flirt with other girls, I could put up with that. There were worse husbands. His problem was that he's a hard man. He thought he knew everything and the world could bend according to his wishes, and that made him foolish. But that's the way they think up in the North. Pah! Northern Water Tribe, they're all the same. Hard-headed and arrogant to the bone. Grand-grand, you're from the Northern Water Tribe. So I should know, shouldn't I? But you haven't even been back there in fifty years. Sokka got a shrewd, beady glare in return, so he clamped his mouth shut and watched the swift movement of his grandmother's hands instead. Fascinated by the motions she made as she wove the needle in and out of the fabric stretched tight in its hoop. He made those round frames earlier in the summer, bending slender saplings shipped from the special nurseries up the coast, tying them with mineral silk cords. The wood was a new breed of alder, was engineered to be stronger and more flexible than normal wood, and it'll last for longer too, compared to Grand Grand's old hoops. But he didn't tell her that. 
She would have insisted that her old alder frames were fine. She disliked new things like heated houses and polar bear dogs and engineered wood. He thought he knew everything and the world could bend according to his wishes, and that made him foolish. His grandmother had never met Unalak, but it amazed Sokka to imagine if she did. Maybe that was what Sokka needed, his grandmother to pull on the avatar's earlobes and give him a good scolding, like he's a twelve-year-old boy. "'Are you listening to me at all?' his grandmother asked, breaking through his reverie. It seemed like she had been talking the whole time. Sokka's head snapped back up. "'Yes!' And are you going to get more oil for the stove? I think it's very hard-headed and arrogant of you to order your only grandson around like this, he said, but he leapt up anyway. Sokka gave his surroundings a quick scan for any other chores he could do, but everything was clean and tidy already. There was plenty of water left for tea, and even the honey bucket had been emptied that day. He took the cups with him, though. He had a vague thought about washing them on his way. He came back with the clean teacups, sat down, saw Grand Grand's admonishing expression, and then, too late, remembered that he was meant to be getting the fat for the lamp. He jumped up again, still holding the teacup in his wet hands, and the earthenware slipped through his fingers and sailed in an arc across the small room, where it bounced off a pile of dried sealskins and rolled away. Oh, Sokka, his grandmother sighed. Sometimes I wonder what you're good for. Scrambling after the teacup on his hands and knees, Sokka shrugged helplessly. He often wondered the same thing himself. He finished his tea and went to see Bato next. He was lucky. Most of the men were out on the land hunting but Bato had stayed behind to tend a sick fox dog. Sokka found him outside of his house, stroking the head of a fox dog and murmuring softly to her. When he saw Sokka, he smiled at him in greeting. He took a hand off the speckle-coated creature and beckoned Sokka to come closer. This animal's not doing well, Bato said. He straddled the dog and tugged her head back gently to show Sokka her eyes. Their dark color was washed over with gray, like soil frozen over with frost. Cataracts. Poor thing. Sokka leaned in for a better look, but the fox dog, smelling his presence, growled. A job for a healer? he asked Bato. She was a good animal, Sokka could tell. Only three years old, with the powerful haunches and shoulders of a born sled puller. Bato released the fox dog and smoothed a hand over her flank, soothing away her ire. We can fix it without a healer. It takes a steady hand and a sharp needle, but we can draw off the membrane without any bending. It's been done before. I watched my own father do it when I was young. He took out a needle and showed it to Sokka. It was curved, sharp, the size of Sokka's middle finger joint. It takes two men. One to hold her down, and one to do it. Bato cupped her jaws in his broad brown hand and closed his fingers over her sleek snout to demonstrate. I can help, 
Sokka said. The fox dog growled again and snapped her jaws as if she understood what Sokka was saying. Sokka snatched his hand away just in time to save his mittens from a dog. No, heal, girl! The fox dog barked. Bato laughed. It's all right. Itopli will help me do it later when he's back. He knows how to handle animals better than I can. I see, Sokka said. It'll be frightening for her. She needs someone who knows how to handle these things. Itopli has a gentle touch. He'd know better than you how to calm her down. This was a fact, not a judgment. Bato had the blunt quality shared amongst men who spent a lot of time alone or with only animals for company. He said plain things in a plain way. He did things that needed to be done. Itopli was one of the other men at the camp. He was a good man, and the few times Sokka had spoken to him, he had been pleasant. But Sokka felt a surge of jealousy fly out of his chest anyways, aimed at Itopli like an invisible arrow. I'm not absolutely useless, you know, he snapped. His grandmother's words earlier had affected him more than he'd thought. Bato raised a hand, as if he was about to stroke Sokka's fur to calm him down, too. That's not what I'm saying. It's fine, Sokka. I agree, actually, Sokka said tightly. Itopli is better at this than I am. Bato gave the fox dog another scratch on her blinded head. She whined, as if she too was mocking Sokka. You sure you don't need a waterbender? Sokka said. I'm sure it'll take Uyarok a few minutes at the most to fix. Bato stood up and brushed his knees. Don't worry about it. Not everything needs a bender to fix it, Sokka. A smart man can do a lot with a knife and a needle. Sokka sighed. Zuko would be very good at this, he thought suddenly. He remembered the way that Fufu attached himself to Zuko, right in front of Sokka, when Sokka had been the one giving him treats and brushing his coat for the last week and a half before. An animal engineered to hate firebenders still liked Zuko better than him, which was really just so deeply unfair. Animals hated Sokka, no matter if they were natural or engineered from the labs, the ones who got to know him eventually relaxed so he could at least ride Upa, but strange animals always hated him on sight. It was like they could smell something wrong with him, like Sokka had a miasma rising out of his pores that drove them crazy through instinct. For that, and for many other reasons, Sokka was hopeless at hunting, hopeless at raising fox dogs, Hopeless at a lot of things that made men like Bato and Itapli who they were. He was never good at the things that men did. Sokka had no knack for things like fighting or hunting or taking care of animals. He lived a life surrounded by books and machines. Most of the time, he was at peace with his own inadequacies, though sometimes it stung to be reminded. Bato clapped him on the shoulder. I'm going out fishing today. Are you coming? I'll start leashing up the fox dogs if you check the sled runners. 
They might need sharpening. Sokka gave a nod of agreement. By now, the sun was high overhead. If Zuko and Azula had escaped, they should have found the supplies and Sokka's note by now. He wondered what they were doing. If they were heading north, up towards the sea, or south, closer to the North Pole. He wondered if they had left behind any casualties, or if Zuko at least tried to honor Sokka's request. It was too late now. There was no stopping anything. Only the future mattered now. Sitting on the sled, Sokka listened to the hard squeak of the fox dog's paws as they raced across the snow. Bato was a good driver, and his confidence flowed through the reins in his hands and made the dogs alert and eager to please. The lead dog was a smart one, with a splash of milky white on her chest, and between her guidance and Bato's driving, the sled ran as smoothly as if it was propelled by a waterbender. Normally, Sokka would enjoy this, but... During the trip, he could not shake the nagging sense he was missing something. The letter that Zuko carried. Sokka wished he brought it along with him, though he already had memorized the words. To Monk Gyatso, I'm sorry to leave without saying goodbye in person, but I heard what Monk Pasang was planning, and I'd rather run away than be sent to the Eastern Air Temple. I don't know if I'm ready to be the Avatar. Not yet. I'm taking Apo South. Maybe I'll go penguin sledding for a while. Don't worry. Saving the world is a big responsibility, and I won't forget it. I just need some time alone to think things over. Appa and I will both be back before you even miss us. With all my love and respect, Aang. Zuko and his sister had sneaked into enemy territory with a 100-year-old letter, guided by a vision of a frozen pond. What were they hoping to find? What could they even find? Suppose the letter was real. Maybe Aang hit a snowstorm, or was attacked by a vicious sheep ox, or got lost and ran out of supplies, or perished in one of the hundreds of ways that anyone could perish in the South Pole. Was there a tiny, frozen corpse somewhere out on the tundra? Sokka found that thought insanely sad. Or, if Aang wasn't dead, then what had he done with himself for the next sixty or so years? Unalak and the rest of the Northern Water Tribe remained tight-lipped about his origins, but Sokka judged that he was somewhere in his early middle age. For the reincarnation cycle to work, Aang must have died forty or fifty years ago. What had he been doing all that time? Why didn't he stop the Northern Water Tribe when they invaded the Fire Nation? He sounded flighty in the letter, Sokka thought. Irresponsible. More than a little frightened of the weight thrust upon him. It felt plausible that he had run away and never stopped. He had an air bison, didn't he? He could have hidden himself away anywhere in the world and then died a natural death. No one would have ever known. Yes, that was the sensible explanation. Sokka was almost sorry for Zuko, searching for his special savior when this Aang was probably nothing more than a coward, and long dead as well. 
He had said as much to Zuko last night. If the Avatar reflected the world he was in, maybe every era deserved the Avatar that they got. But still, poor Aang. He seemed very young in his letter. Thank you so much for listening. Um, that was chapter two. I'm hoping to record chapter three either tonight or tomorrow sometime, so that should be up shortly after this. Um, thank you again to Chuffy Stilton for writing this and letting me read it. Thank you to my girlfriend for being quiet while she ripped nails out of the wall. And thank you to all of you for listening again. I am really enjoying this story and I can't wait to see where it goes, so yeah. Yay. Anyway, happy holidays. Um, and stay safe out there. Omicron is still doing its thing. So while you're doing the family gathering thing, maybe keep that in mind because I want y'all to stay safe. Anyways, have a good night and I appreciate you.